0: Good evening and welcome to this Cumberland Conversation. For those of you joining us for the first time, Cumberland Conversations are informal discussions where we explore issues through the life and work of guest speakers. And I'm delighted to be joined this evening by filmmaker Sue Carpenter. Sue, thank you so much for being with us. Sue and I are going to have a conversation for about 40 minutes or so, and then we'll move to Q&A. If you have a question for Sue, please send it using the Q&A function and we'll aim to finish promptly at 7pm. But without more ado, let's crack on. So, Sue, uh, later on we're going to talk about your film, I Am Meyer. But before we do so, I'd like to explore with you your journey to making that film and to explore it from two angles. First of all, um, how you became a filmmaker and secondly how you got to know Mayer, who lives in Nepal and I guess that is Mayer, we can see on our screen looking over the Himalayas. That's her. Great so what's your story then Sue how did you how do you get into filmmaking um, well, it, it, it started <laughs> off in, in journalism.
1: Yeah exactly it started off um, uh, I started off working at Harper's and Queen, which is a very different animal, um, a glossy magazine, and um, working for, in the editorial department there and just gradually started doing more and more journalism. And um, through that, I sort of expanded and started being freelance and then gradually doing more and more um, photos to support my journalism. And then I did quite a lot of work um, going overseas, not sort of frontline foreign correspondent work, but kind of uh, writing about issues and um, and then taking photos as well. And usually there was a, a cause involved. So beginning to get into this sort of, you know, social issue world and mixing with NGOs who were trying to save the world and me writing about it, that kind of world. Um, so...
0: Yeah. Yes, I mean, you've written for quite a wide range of, of uh, newspapers and uh, and journals and magazines. Perhaps you could just give us a flavour of the of the people yeah. you've been working with.
1: Well, I mean, it started, as I say, with Harper's and Queen, which was, um, you know, all the kind of glossy world of style writing, and um, you know, it was all in the words and the clever puns and. Um, then yeah moved into other magazines and then i worked um quite a lot for uh well the telegraph the times i did pieces for um the uh the guardian i've worked for and and then um i did a stint on the daily mail which i don't u- usually make a big thing of because it's not really my <laughs> where my heart lies these days and it was but it was very instructive there was a lot of um you know we want more polemics so we want more thesis. And so it's very good about it, sort of discipline about nailing your story, which, of course, is a translatable skill when it comes to filmmaking, um, really sort of knowing what your story is about and nailing that, what your message is and what your aim is. Um, and then the one I did a lot of um, these overseas pieces for was You magazine, which is the Mail on Sunday magazine, which, again, has changed a lot. But um, in the days when I was working for it, which was in the 90s, I guess, um, I'd, I'd go on expeditions to like Mongolia. I did a piece about street kids in Mongolia who were living in sewers because they're heated um, through the harsh winters uh, and other ones like that.
0: And obviously communicating via the, the word, written word is rather different to communicating uh, through, uh, through film. But you said that um, photography was something that was important to you as a, as a journalist. Was that, is that something that just sort of gradually emerged?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I did art A level, so I've always had a visual eye and, um, yeah, always enjoyed photography. And I suppose all these, all the things I've done, I've kind of really learned by myself or, or just on the hop, you know, just sort of gone in, plunged in feet first, and then sort of learnt as I go along, including the filmmaking in a way. Um, and so I definitely suffer from at the same time from imposter syndrome. So I kind of never dared think I could be a photographer, but actually I discovered while I was working in journalism that I, you know, I could take photos as well and then I'd hand those in as well. And they'd say, oh, these are good. We don't need to send a photographer next time. Um, and yeah so I did quite a lot of travel writing as well so uh, I'd always do my own travel photography and just I guess by looking at other photos getting inspiration for how to use different angles and effects and and having some sort of eye I guess of my own about how to frame things um, to, to get best effect so yes
0: and then can you tell us a bit about the journey from, from write, writing uh, into into filmmaking? How did, how did yes. you make the jump? Why did you make the jump? Um,
1: well, partly because I really wanted to work in a team. But, you know, that was perhaps a bit misguided because a lot of my work, um, even on I Bell Meyer, has ended up being me and my computer, um, doing the edit and doing a lot of the funding proposals and all of, you know, this everything really around it is is still quite solitary. Um, But yes, I I enjoy very much, which also happens in writing and um, certainly writing stories which are commissioned for magazines and especially if they've, um, like quite a lot of the time, I do um, sort of interviews with people where they would send a photographer because it might be a sort of at-home type thing. So they'd have a a specialised photographer who sets up all the, the room sets um so that would be a team piece and and that was my f- sort of favorite thing really a small team with a very specific objective um so that's that was partly it and then you know evolving all the stories that I was working with um, in um, like in Mongolia and uh, I think we'll mention in a minute about the whole Nepal connection but these um, all these stories you know it's kind of limiting obviously the page i mean i you know i like writing and i people appreciated my writing so you know it was it was good but i you know i think one has more than one life in oneself and i just wanted to um to expand into films and and particularly documentary because it it's really is an extension of journalism and I'm interested in human stories and real people's testimonies. You know, that's what really drives me and interests me when people have got a story to tell and just to really learn all about them and, yeah, their specific tes- testimonies. And I think, you know, as against fiction, it is a very different thing, but documentaries can be just so powerful um, and you know they really can change change lives that just both the lives, hopefully for the better of the people in the film and by using their story as inspiration um, and a kickoff point you know as a campaigning tool and I think that's where documentaries have a unique position in the art and news world.
0: We can explore um, your documentary in a moment, but one thing that just intrigued me as we were talking, I wonder, whether um, your filmmaking has affected the way you write. Do you think it's had any influence on um, that?
1: I wonder whether it has. I, I mean, I've, I definitely use my writing skills that I learnt, um, both at Harpers and Queen and The Mail and You magazine, all of those, to be able to hone a, a funding application and all my promotional material, I don't know if it works the other way around exactly. Um, possibly, I think I think you know one is constantly sort of trying to nail what stories are about. And sometimes when I read what somebody else has written, I just read a review today in the Lancet, um, which emanates back to a, a festival screening of the film at a, um, the Global Health Film Festival, and um, she said there was an over the overarching question of this film is. I won't say it now but you know the <laughs> fact that she said that to me it made me think oh that's what my film's about you know mm. but i guess there's many truths and many avenues to things and sometimes it's not as simple as it is just about one thing it's it's got so many different threads that you could sort of major on one or another thread
0: yeah and i guess in i mean in a very digital world now we're going to be used to absorbing information in in multimedia ways and uh and i think i'm sure that's going to affect the way we interact uh, with text and 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 with film i suspect it's yeah, going to be
1: a. it already is doing so yeah. you know the bite sized yeah. chunk and turning your screen instead of you know horizontal turning it this way that i notice um you know, so many young people automatically do that. And and I think, oh, don't do that. But I tried to post something, a little video to Instagram today. And, of course, it wants you to do it vertically now. So I thought, oh, that was an own goal, trying to be very strict with my landscape shape. So, yeah, you know, everything is changing all the time.
0: Yeah. And... Another important part of your life has been to set up charities, and I think the first one is uh, Jay Salma in Jeopardy. And perhaps you could just tell us a bit about this particular project and actually how it came about.
1: Yes, well, that came about through an article. was I was actually taking a bit of a sabbatical and I was sitting on a rooftop in Jaisalmer which is right in the far west of um Rajasthan just before you hit the the tar desert which leads into Pakistan near the border and so it's very remote and it's like something out of Arabian Nights this magical fairy tale castle um but with people living inside and um I kind of noticed that the beautiful palaces inside had been um, repaired with cement pointing into this beautiful golden stone. And um, that was, you know, kind of, ooh, it just looks so jarring and and wrong. Um, And then I sort of opened my eyes to noticing other things. Anyway, I got talking to a conservation architect who told me that um, the state of Jaisalme was a 12th century citadel, um, it was actually falling down and there were really, really critical issues there. And so when I got home, I wrote an article about it for New Scientist. I happened to have a contact there. And, um, and, you know, it was, it's a very kind of august place to put your, your um, work. And so it got very um, much picked up and seen by people, including conservation architects. And the whole thing burgeoned and then I was asked to give a lecture about it and from that everybody said what can we do so the natural progression seemed to be if people wanted to give money to try and save this city was to set up a charity in order to to fulfill that function so um yeah so that's what we did and and that yes in a way I suppose the same as um, documentaries you know articles can spark change in that way too um, and so, yes, for, for quite some years, I think it was, was it, uh, I think it was 1995 or something that I wrote the article and I was with the charity for at least 10 years. Um, and we raised a lot of money and we re- rebuilt some of the old palaces that had fallen down because of water ingressing into the foundations. Um, we shored up the foundations. We put in a sewerage system for the whole city, up in the fort. So, yeah, quite a lot of amazing work was done there and um, saved it for a few more generations.
0: What I love about it is that your journalism—you don't just write about it and uh, hope other people might be inspired by it. You actually seem to be inspired. You seem to inspire yourself and are willing to to really get muck muck in and make things happen, which is which is tremendous. And sort of leading on from that, you then, uh, the next charity that's in, uh, inspired by you, which you were a founding trustee, is ashana Nepal. Uh, and again, perhaps you could tell us about, about that one.
1: Yes, yeah, so that was my next article, um, which, uh, so I spent a lot of time in India after that. And while I was there, You Magazine said, could you nip up to Kathmandu and do a quick article about this home where there's um, a woman who's rescuing girls who've been trafficked into prostitution in India uh, which is a terrible problem in Nepal there's there's estimates of the numbers of girls that could be anything from 5,000 to 20,000 a year but you know it's huge numbers and I think it's been it's got worse in the pandemic because you know you can't well the livelihoods have gone down and so on um so uh, I did this article, and um, a British man read it and decided it was going to be his life's mission to set up a charity to support um, this cause in Nepal. And so um, asked me to be a founder trustee with him. And together we set up, yeah, a charity which aims to help prevent and rescue and rehabilitate. Um, women and particularly focusing now on the sort of rehabilitation and getting them back into normal society in Nepal because it's you know hugely stigmatized and of course a lot of girls never return sadly Um, and and then trying to push the whole prevention work of of education and um, awareness
0: and while you were going over to Nepal, in a, in a, you, you, you became a single mum, but in mm-hmm. rather unusual circumstances. Perhaps you could uh, tell us about, about this.
1: Yes, well, yet another knock-on effect of that same article and becoming a trustee of Asha Nepal. I was, um, went back on a field trip one year and this little baby was put into my arms and the principal of the home said um oh this is Simran and she hates loud noises and then sort of went bam 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 in her face and I just thought oh that's not a very nice thing to do that poor little girl and yeah she kind of fixed me with her eyes that little girl who was eight months at the time and um yes well I came home and thought hmm hmm Mm, and put out lots of feelers, asked people about it, and, and then decided to go ahead and try and adopt her. So, you know, it's a long process to be vetted back in the UK um, and waiting for the whole thing to be rubber-stamped, which was, that was the worst bit, because i have been approved. You had to wait another nine months to be rubber-stamped to go out and get your baby, who meanwhile is growing up. Um, mm. So she was uh, nearly three by the time I brought her home. Um, but she's now a strapping 21-year-old and, um, yes, a musician, um, singer-songwriter. And, yeah, she's a great girl.
0: Well, that's tremendous. Well, maybe we can get her to come and do something at Cumberland Lodge. You never know.
1: Yes, yes, I'm sure she'd love to.
0: So that's, I mean, and get another example that your your journalism leads you into all sorts of uh, uh, initiatives. And what a wonderful thing to to, to do. Um, so as well as um, a daughter, Asha Nepal also led to um, a project called My World, My View. Um, perhaps you could talk, tell us about about this project?
1: Yeah. So um, partly because I had Simi, my daughter, um, who was growing up very much a British girl and saying, you know, sort of Quite kind of pushing away Nepal. I think you know that uh, there's a lot of issues there. Some adopted children sort of really embrace their home country, others rather reject it. And I didn't want her to sort of not know it firsthand. So um, I, I wanted her to have a chance to actually sort of spend a bit of time growing up there and and have firsthand memories of it. Um, and partly because I really was working with um, Ash and Nepal you know, in a remote way. And I wanted to actually be there and get to know some of the, the young women that we worked with and, and just have a more hands-on experience. And I also was inspired by a film I'd seen, which also partly inspired my real desire to get more into documentary filmmaking, um, which was called Born Into Brothels, where the kids of the, the uh, prostitutes were given cameras by somebody, who a photojournalist who was working with them. And um, and it was amazingly empowering for them. So I designed this project to teach photography to girls in Nepal. And I did it under the umbrella of Fashion Nepal, but with a sister organization in Pokhara, which is what you see behind me. Or the view from Pokhara is what you see behind me. Um, and uh, so Simi and I went to live there for nine months. And... It was a real kind of, you know, it was a massive eye opener—the the difference in culture and the layers. When, you know, if you travel through somewhere, you you really don't understand the complexities of the country at all. Um, and I'd been writing all these things about it, and I knew awful things happened, but I didn't really understand how society worked. So it was it was very very interesting, and um, and I got to work with about twenty young schoolgirls who were living in a home with different disadvantaged backgrounds, um, and teaching them photography really is a means of kind of creativity and self-expression and to give them a voice, which their school system doesn't really do. It's much more of by road, do as you're told. So this was to encourage their individuality.
0: And amongst them was a, a girl called Mayer.
1: Yep. And there she is. Um, yes, exactly. She um, she was one of the sparkiest girls. She was always wanting the camera. Sue, Sue, give me camera, camera. And, you know, quite an edgy character. But it was that that rather drew me to her because a lot of the girls were just sort of quite compliant and sweet and submissive, which society sadly teaches you to be there. And it was very at odds with my whole ethos of my photo project, which was about you know, being yourself and expressing yourself and showing your unique view of the world. Um, and, but, you know, lots of them did love using the camera, but Bellmire, one or two others as well, but um Bellmire kind of stuck with me. She, yeah, just had this real bump about her and she was a natural feminist. She wanted to, you know, take pictures to show all the terrible things that happened to girls and, how they get beaten and have to do all the household chores and the the fields work in the fields and cut grass and carry firewood and miss out on school a lot of the time. Um, yeah, so she she was one of the leading lights of that project.
0: and then from from photography to to filmmaking, and perhaps you could. Say something. I don't. Want, um, we're, there's an opportunity to to, to watch Ion Belmayer next week, so I'm trying to avoid any spoilers, but without giving too much away, perhaps you could tell us about the the film, how it came about, and what's what's the thrust of it all.
1: Yes, um, yes. I don't. Th- I think it doesn't give too much away to say that it's um, it's kind of like a. a Um, continuation of the photo project in a way but with a massive hiatus in between when I left Nepal it was uh, 2007 after that photo project and I wasn't able to go back till um well 2013 I went on a recce mission and then 2014 I started filming um but that kind of seven year or so gap um unfortunately the home had closed its doors to outsiders and I wasn't able to visit and keep in touch with Belmire so I went back and um, she was living in dire straits very poor with a husband by then who she married at 19 and a little baby daughter and um, had sort of given up hope of, of A decent future because she just you know her she didn't have much of an education I think she got kicked out of the home Um, she wasn't doing well at school there because she'd missed so much early school and she just couldn't see a future for herself but um, then we heard about this documentary filmmaker in Nepal Nepalese who was teaching girls like her um, to pick up a camera, to um, make a film, tell their own story, and to give them a voice. So very similar to my photo project. And she absolutely jumped at the chance to do this training. Um, And so then we conceived of the idea of following her journey as she learnt filmmaking herself, and to see what happened. And rather a lot happened. (laughs)
0: And how? I mean, the, perhaps you can just say a little bit more about 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 what we see in the film again, without trying to uh, to, yes. to to give away too much. <laughs>
1: yes. Well, she, um, you know, so she she starts off really not even remembering really much about a camera at all. She knows it's a camera, but beyond that, she doesn't know much else, sort of trying to remember what is Zoom. She was asked what different cameras there are, and she goes, well, there's a Zoom one and a digital one. Um, But then you see her learning to pick up the tripod, and she's just gradually, gradually learning filmmaking. Um, And my idea from it really was that I'd just follow her really for the length of the training and that would probably be the end of it she she might create her own well I, I hoped that she would create her own film within the course of my film and that would be an end in itself um, but she things kind of happened in in the family um, and so there was in classic storytelling terms, the antagonists, the obstacles, you know, it was a real struggle for her to try and push for her an independence um, with life at home, pulling her back again and trying to make her be a conventional member of Nepal society and like a good woman at home. Um, but she kept plowing through and she made a film, um, which is a very pertinent Thing about girls' education, and then another film, and there are more. You know, it keeps building really. And I kept thinking I got to the end of the, my film about it, her, and then another plot point happened. Um, and in the midst of it all, of course, there's the earthquake, which was a massive setback—not just of Almayer, obviously a massive, you know, devastating impact on the whole of Nepal, um, but it meant we couldn't film for a year. Um, and I won't give away the end, but, you know, she does keep, keep going with her filmmaking and some amazing things happen.
0: Ah, we're back.
1: Did you hear me? Did you, did you lose me or did I lose you there?
0: I lost you, but, but, uh. There we are. I don't so, know
1: what point you lost me, but um, it, probably when I was giving a spoiler, so it's probably perfect.
0: Yes, exactly. That's probably what it was. It was the sense <laughs> the of coming to sort it out. Well, I suppose one of the um, the really great, again, without trying to give too much away, but one of the very sensitive aspects of, of the film is that, as you've alluded to, there were difficulties at home and there's the... There's the difficulties in in Bell Mayer's marriage really comes through. I mean, that's a really difficult thing to deal with. And how did you tackle that as um, uh, as a filmmaker?
1: Yes, well, part of filmmaking, of course, is the actual production side when you're filming. And in documentary, you you try and film as much as you can, really. If it's a long form documentary, you're there to observe what's happening, and then part of it comes when you're making sense of that footage sort of, because we filmed over such a long time, it was um, from 2014 to 2019, so five years of filming. um, There was a lot of time to look back and think, are we representing this in the right way? And then we could add in more interview uh, to try and make sense of things. And then part of it's in the edit. So we really had sort of three stages of being able to look at how this was being presented. And um, Belmire's husband basically, you know, was is very conservative and um, traditional. And he just partly, I think, wanted to protect her, that she should be always with a man chaperoned and not allowed out and not doing stuff. But, you know, of course, very um, very controlling. And wanted her to be looking after him and for him, his needs to be paramount um, and not really thinking about her and her needs. And um, he, too, had missed out on a lot of education. And so he was, um, you know, increasingly sort of resentful and took it out on her and it, it became very difficult. So we weren't firsthand filming the scenes behind the scenes, what was happening with her, but but she was relating through interview what happened. And really my kind of directorial job came in later to, to sort of see how we were representing this, as you say, you know, it's a very sensitive, we did get um, both Bell and her husband's full consent to, to make this documentary and to follow them and whatever they're, you know, whatever we filmed to be on film. But at the same time, I he did ask for one or two things not to be shown and I've respected that. Um, and there's a kind of critical incident that happens um, involving the police. And he specifically did not want that shown in Nepal. So there's actually a second version of the film that's slightly cut to, um, to respect those wishes. Um, so I think, you know, that's that's how the best one can do as a documentary maker is to be as truthful and honest as you can, but also respectful and, and certainly if, you know, making sure that everybody um, has full consent and understands along the way, you keep sort of checking that consent along the way. And I showed as well all the material to Belle Meyer as we went along and as she became more proficient herself in filmmaking, she was able to take a lot of the footage herself and make many more decisions. So by the end of the film, there's actually information about the husband that she says, and she she refused to talk about it any more than she does because she was there to make that decision, whereas I think at the beginning of the film, she might have been much more open. So I think, you know, yes, with respect and... Um, you know, trying to be as authentic as possible and to represent um, uh, the, her husband's point of view as well. So we did interview him and put in his point of view and he becomes a more sympathetic figure as, as the film goes on because you understand he's had a very difficult mm. background as well. Mm.
0: Another initiative that you're involved with is called Global Girl Media UK and uh, I, I think this is all part of the same milieu, as it were, and perhaps you could uh, tell us about about that.
1: Yes, well, I heard about it when I was just starting out on the um, Belmire filming journey, and it just seemed to echo so much of what I'd become involved in since the photo project of, you know, giving a girl a camera to tell her story, to give her a voice and to empower her. And that's what this charity does. And it emanates from the USA, uh, set up by a documentary maker there, and um, has had great success with girls, cohorts of girls who, again, come from sort of underserved communities and um, so more sort of minority ethnic and socioeconomic sectors of society. Um, And they address issues that are important to them and tell their stories. So I've worked with a lot of girls here in the UK who've made films, for example, about knife crime and how that affects women, not just the young men involved in it. Um, And, you know, body image and all sorts of those kind of issues that affect young women. And I think they feel that they're not seeing those things in mainstream society. So it's really important for them to be able to get those stories out And by doing that, the overall aim in world society, which is the same as the aim with Bell Meyer, is that you start changing society. Because if you can get these stories of women out, told by the women who the stories are about, rather than told by some, you know, outsider from on high, um, you start really changing perceptions and societal attitudes and hopefully make a shift in the way society operates
0: and do you think the girls you work with on this do you think it helps them express themselves using film or do you think they may not have otherwise been able to say what they wanted to say if they had to sort of stand up in front of people and uh, and speak maybe or or write things down
1: yeah I mean I guess there's a Sort of confluence of um, all sorts of things, and, and one is where we're at today with digital technology and the internet and platforms. Um, so they, you know, they can say things on their Snapchat or Instagram um, to their peers, but we help hone their ideas and to really um, get them to understand the sort of messages they want to put over, and maybe find platforms um, for them so they can reach a wider audience. Um, and I think, yes, the, the the short film format is a really good one. I think all young people and, and probably all people really uh, respond well to seeing something on a film because, it you know, it's so real and so immediate and insightful. And you can get a very powerful message over very quickly, probably more than if it's just one person speaking or a photograph. I mean, although those play their strong role as well um so yeah i think it really works for them
0: thank you i'm going to morph now into the questions that have come in from some of those who are joining us and one of them sort of links in with a uh, question i was going to ask you about um about the white savior uh, is- issue um because the sort of work you've been dealing with i guess um there's a there's a possibility that you could be seen in, in that sort of context. And the uh, question that's come in is, soon can, from an anonymous attendee, Sue, can uh, any colonial undertone be felt in the contents of your film? So perhaps you could sort of mm-hmm. deal with those two questions together.
1: Yes, exactly. Well, um, I hope please come and see the film and let me know what you think. But I hope, and from all the feedback I've been getting, um, the answer is no, it doesn't feel like that at all. And um, it's, you know, it's a very strong issue that, that we had to think about a lot. Um, and I went back and forth over this because in some ways it's my story as well as Bell Myers at the beginning because she wouldn't have picked up a camera in the first place if it weren't for me. Um, and I wasn't sure at the beginning whether I should be in it as well. And so we did shoot quite a lot of the time with me in the picture, but we did it both ways, luckily, um, with me and with just Meyer. And it just became clear that that should be, you know, all pared away, all trace of me, and that it it should just allow Bellmire's voice to come through. And it was in those early stages that I wasn't, you know, entirely sure. And then um, as I say, just the more she became emancipated herself and the more she picked up the camera, just the more it became clear that that was so much more powerful and interesting. And then with the work I've been doing through Global Bell Media UK, which probably sort of came halfway through my filming, um, it has sensitized me much more to this notion of, of um, participatory filmmaking where the, the, the subject takes a very strong role in telling their own story and, uh, you know, who is representing the, the representation in the story, you know, who who's there telling the story. And now I feel really strongly and passionately that people should tell their own stories. You know, I'd much rather... You know, probably I was already doing it in my writing without realizing it. I remember somebody um, commissioning me to do an article about, um, and they wanted three different women writing a piece about something. And then they turned it into a sort of interview as if they'd interviewed me. And I was absolutely furious. I thought, you know, you didn't interview me. I wrote that and I said it my way. And now you've made it your way. And so I absolutely can see, you know, to, to let people tell their own story their own way is of course what's important. So um, in fact in the film I there's one little bit in the middle where um, I was in the f- frame because you, know, you couldn't keep me out of it because it was a, a live event that was happening and Belmaya got very emotional and I'd just gone over to sort of, you know, link arms with her. So I you can see me there and then I'm there kind of very glimpse of me at the very beginning just when is saying Sue camera um, just to to note that this is how the whole thing came about and then at the very end there's a glimpse but basically it's all Bellmire's voice and I think that's what people are finding it's really powerful about it that they're getting close to her she's it feels like you're with her um, and it's really her story
0: Going to some more questions that have come in and um, and, and again from someone who's uh, anonymous and says, uh, has Sue found any parallels between the historical oppression of girls and women in Nepal uh, compared with those in the Western world?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think really it's been the same the whole world over and it's just we're a few kind of decades ahead. Um, But I think it's really similar. I mean, there is an extra layer. We have class. Differences here in Britain, and you know, there generally is some sort of class structure or society structure where there are the more privileged, you know, whether it's through wealth or birth. Um, but, um, and there's that extra layer in Nepal because of the caste system through um, being predominantly Hindu, uh, which is even more kind of oppressive and keeps people down in their place. Um, So, you know, there's that intersectionality there of of Belmiah being both a woman, poor, orphaned, you know, you're you're defined by your man in Nepal, um, whether it's your father or your husband, and then your son, and she doesn't have those things. She's got brothers, but she wants to be a woman in her own right, Um, but she's stigmatized by society for not having that critical man in her life. Um, and, um, sorry, I've sort of slightly lost my thread there, but <laughs> just just remind me the actual question.
0: To... But it was the uh, historical oppression of girls. Yes, historical
1: um, oppression, yeah. yes, the parallels. I mean, you know, I think it was the same here, wasn't it? You, your husband, you know, that's why you're Mrs and then you take your husband's name. It's all the same things that the the, the Mayan in the world kind of dominated in society. Um, so I think very similar, um, but it's it's kind of a hard journey there. To move out of it as part of society has been able to move out of it when they're when they're educated and in the cities, as happens in a lot of the developing world, you know, and in our world here. Again, you know, when you're in the suburban centre, you can be a bit more anonymous and you can be more individual and they're a bit more progressive. Um, But in the rural areas of Nepal, it's very, very hard um, because there's just not so much access to communication, and so everything moves. Progression does not progress. You know, it doesn't happen really. Um, and there's so many things they're up against. Plus poverty. Plus corrupt government. Plus plus plus. Um, so yes, I don't know quite what it's going to take to move the whole of society on, but I think girls' education is is critical. And I know there are lots of moves, including by the British government, perhaps in a colonialist way, hopefully not, hopefully in a supportive way. Um, You know, lots of NGOs putting money into trying to promote girls' education throughout Nepal.
0: We've touched earlier on the sensitivities of the the content of the film, and uh, a question uh, has come in. Uh, what did Belmere's families, friends, neighbours, etc., feel about her videoing? Was it approved of? Did she meet up with any resistance?
1: Um, yes, she did. So number one resistance from her husband, um, but her brothers. So the, the sort of big kind of subset of characters in Belmire's life that you see in the film is when she lives in Pokhara in the town, but um, her family village is about an hour and a half out of town up in the mountains by those white peaks um, in the foothills. And um, they live a very kind of basic existence there, very traditional. And she's got, she's the youngest of six siblings. um, some of the family isn't there, but there's, there's kind of three brothers and um, their wives and all their children, etc. And, and so that the, the Baojus, the sisters-in-law, are very critical characters and the brothers. And um, she really wants their support and it's difficult. And I think at the beginning you hear from what Bellmire says rather than kind of witnessing, witnessing firsthand that there has been a lot of opposition and they're basically saying, why are you doing this? You know, it's a waste of time. What's the point? But then there's a moment in the film where she she goes to her village and takes her film and then she relates how her brother reacted to that and and is proud of her, which, you know, is an amazing turnaround. Um, of course, things ebb and flow. You know, I, I wouldn't say that it's all hunky-dory now, it's, you know, up and down. But I think, you know, there is much more respect when the great thing with filmmaking is you have something to show for it at the end of it. Um, you know, a lot of work one does, there's nothing tangible to actually show people, but when people can actually see a film and, and see what's changed, then I think that that is very affecting.
0: And this discussion we've just been having now has, has prompted um, this other question to come in and says, would Sue consider telling the same kind of story and film from the point of view of a man involved? And would that have its own power and still get across the same issues?
1: Well, I think perhaps, um you know, following my own ethos here, I'm not the one to tell that story. Um I kind of quite strongly believe also in women telling women's stories because I think they have a special empathy. Um, and in fact, I just ran a, a school workshop and we, we kind of did some experiments of boys taking pictures of boys and girls taking pictures of girls and then girls boys. And there was definitely, there were dividing lines there of the way that they treated those. You know, the girls' pictures were all kind of trying to, be sweet and nice. And the boys were all kind of larking around and showing up the boys. Now, I mean, obviously they're young and quite immature relatively, but I think there is a different sensibility and there's a different there's things that you implicitly understand. And there's also things that Valmire didn't want to reveal uh, with a man there, but, but when it was just um, me and um, translator who was uh, female, she was willing to talk about them. Um, And I think by the same token, you know, a man's story maybe should be told by a man and maybe by the man who um, is going to be the subject of the story. You know, so maybe maybe there's someone else to do that.
0: There we are. Um, Now, another question. If the pen is mightier than the sword, then does Sue believe that the camera and video camera is even more powerful on the world stage? and could transform the lives of so many girls and women and others who do not currently have a voice?
1: Um, Yes, I think probably I can say yes to all of that. Uh, You know, the pen mightier than the sword was an expression that came about before the camera existed. So um, now that the camera has usurped that position, Yes, I think so. You know, because it's it's you've got to reach people. And how do you reach maximum people through the internet? And internet is visual and videos are visual. You know, that's the way you're going to to reach people. Um, and I think already this film, even before release, is having an impact. Um, I've been doing charity screenings. Um, I mean, our one as well that we're doing next week um, will be one of those where uh, we've we've made nearly twelve thousand pounds for different charities operating in Nepal, uh, which will all go to specific projects which are about empowering women and um, promoting education and health, etc. Um, so it's having an impact that way. And then everybody who sees it, um, it. It sends, it does various things. It, it lets women know in um, Dalit, which is the low caste um, communities in Nepal and their equivalents around the world in other developing countries, that um, they have rights, that they can speak up, that they're important. They're not, you know, to be devalued. They, they should strive for equality. It can spark community action. Um, especially if working alongside an NGO, taking the film to different communities. And that's one of the main impact goals we have for this film, is to take it to different um, rural communities, stage a pop-up cinema, and um, Bell Meyer to go along as an inspirational speaker to say, you know, you, you can, you don't have to... To live this life of being downtrodden. Not, you know, not to sort of completely put a sort of light the blue touch paper and send rockets firing, but just to sort of start the conversation and hopefully get some, um, some action happening that, you know, to inspire other girls and maybe mothers to send their girls to be educated, suddenly realizing, oh yes, that is really important. Um, And I thought perhaps if she missed up till age nine, it wouldn't make much difference. Or if she drops out at 13, it won't make much difference. But actually, we know it does make a difference. So um, all those those things. Yeah, I hope it will be a very mighty implement.
0: (laughs) And should say that we had hoped, but it was just impractical to do so to get Belmire to join us for at least a bit of this evening. But, uh, which sadly, that wasn't possible. But. we yes, I'm her.
1: sorry. Um, it's just you know right now anyway, it's sort of like midnight so she wouldn't yeah. be able to and um, on top of that she she doesn't have she's she does everything including her daughter at the moment is doing online schooling from her phone from she's got one phone that's not very good. Um, she doesn't have zoom on it. so yes.
0: Yeah. we're drawing to a close, but we do have some more questions to come. And uh, we have a question here from Joanna Boyson, who's asked, um, in the pieces of your journey you have shared this evening, I was struck by the big spaces in time amongst the intent and the output of what you are creating. It seems to me that it depends on enormous individual resilience. What keeps you striving when life happens?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I guess yeah, it's true. You do have to kind of keep going, and it's not like I was every day kind of of those many years, six years, jumping up and doing Bellmire work. You know, there were hiatuses in between. As I say, there was that big one in um, 2015 with the earthquake, uh, and I really, I just, you know, I couldn't go out there. Nobody was traveling there, and I've got my daughter here. I had to see through GCSEs and. Um, so I, you know, there were moments where things didn't happen. But luckily, by that stage, Valmire was taking her own footage. So we, you know, we do have footage of that period, which is wonderful that you can see. Um, but how do I keep going? I think it's just usually something kind of happens to spark me again. I mean, I even had the same thing with adopting Simi, where, you know, as I say, that was two over two years of... Um, trying to keep that going and there were moments when you know life got in the way and I was doing that and I almost kind of put it on the back burner and and just thought well it'll happen if it happens and then somebody would just say something and and of friend of mine, you know, said, so when's this happening? I've just, you know, I didn't tell everyone at first, I gather you've got a doctor, it's the best thing you can do. And that really spurred me on again. So I think, yeah, encouraging, we all, all sort of thrive, don't we, with encouragement. Um, so definitely that. And I think that's a message as well for Belmiah, that, um, you know, she's never had anybody mentoring or championing her before. And I think that's what value she gets from my presence and she's been in touch quite a lot now sort of with like if she's not very well or if she doesn't know what to do about Bipana. you know she's I think that's that's really important is is to have people in your life who who kind of spur you on Um, and and then the other thing that spurs me is is a kind of sense of commitment that I've committed to Belmire I've committed to the film so at some point it was going to be finished and perhaps actually, you know, thank you to Lockdown. I actually finally sat down and finalized the, the edit and all, all the kind of tricky technical bits that I've been putting off. Um, yeah.
0: And some, two, two final questions. One is um, about Belle Maya. Perhaps you could just tell us how she is now, what she's up to, how much you're in touch with her, and so on
1: yeah so she's um she's in good spirits um i did manage because it was early in the day and um i could sort of do it do it on my computer um when i was at the school workshop on monday i managed to messenger her We, we talked through facebook messenger and so i managed to get her live talking to all the school kids so she was really happy about that um so we're in touch quite a lot i'd say at least once a week um she quite often just rings up for a chat um, and let me know they're in lockdown again you know so it's been a really difficult year but she and my daughter uh, collaborated on a commission this past year um a short film for uk asian film festival so that's a lovely thing that's um it'll be coming out in the next month or so um uh, that was like a music video and then Balmire did all the visuals and it's got the same story really of wanting to be free and be me that's the the refrain of the song I want to be me I want to be free um, and sort of casting off those chains that hold you back um, so she shot that and she's got more commissions in the offing through these charity screenings but it's just lockdown and of course the Covid crisis is mm. terrible now again and the pool having you know, suffered from people coming back from India over the borders.
0: Sure. And the film is getting very well received, is it not?
1: It it is, yes. No, fantastically. Um, You know, audience is just uh, so positive. I mean, I really had no idea at first whether it was going to be just... You know, a nice film or a good film. Um, but the first thing I got was um, unsolicited a, a review in UK Film Review, who review independent, and it was five stars. And I burst into tears. I thought I can't believe this. You know, I really did not know that it was actually going to be received critically well. Um, and now it's got into ten festivals so far, and it's shortlisted for a One World Media Award. So, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's wonderful. And, and people who see it say they're really moved and enlightened by it. So, you know, that's really important too.
0: It's it is a fascinating film. And the final question, someone some, I was going to ask it, but someone has, has asked it as well online and says, what are you planning to produce or direct next?
1: Uh, Yes, that question, that question I never know the answer to. I think I've put so much into this that, um, you know, I'm still kind of focused, really. It's going to be another year of of getting this film out and and the kind of knock on impact work for it, which is probably the most important thing I can be doing. If I kind of divert onto a different film, then maybe this won't fulfill its promise and potential for having a, a really strong impact internationally um so i i think that's probably what i should focus on i mean i I do have rough ideas but um i'll 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 see i'll I'll sort this one first because the actual release is until the 11th of october so um you know that's going to easily keep me going for the run-up to it in another six months
0: well we've all got a chance to to watch it and uh with a private screening so before we draw to a close I'd just like to say a little bit about that private screening and oops my uh, device has conked out and it's back on again now and um, so you can watch the uh, the film anytime between 6 p.m. next Thursday the 20th of May and 11 p.m. on Friday the 12th so you can you can get tickets for this uh, and we're asking for a minimum donation of ten pounds per person, uh, and ticket holders will be sent a private viewing link. And perhaps you could just say about where the funds go, Sue.
1: Yes. Well, so half are going to Cumberland Lodge for your work, um, and half are going to um, well, twenty percent of my portion, um, the films portion, goes to um, to Belmire. Uh, herself, which is you know, and she's been able to live this year through these donations, and she's got about another year's worth of, of living costs, which is absolutely vital for her because she's had no other potential livelihood for the last year. Um, and then the rest of it is to to go towards the release and our future impact work. So it's all going to very good causes.
0: <laughs> That's great. And so, if you'd like uh, tickets. Um, The Eventbrite link to buy them will be sent to everyone who's registered for this conversation and we'll also display it in a moment. Just one final uh, advert, if you like, a um, a reminder that the studio where I'm sitting, so I'm not actually in the library of Cumberland Lodge, I'm in a rather boring green screen studio, but it's high tech, great facilities, and um, it is available for hire for anyone that needs to do any webcasting. And we're very conscious these days that there's such a demand uh, to be online. Uh, So if you or someone you know might be interested in hiring our studio, do please be in touch with our uh, meeting and events team. But all it remains for me to do is to say thank you. Thank you to everyone who's joined in this evening. And thank you so much, Sue, for being such a wonderful conversation partner. Uh, Thank you for being with us and good night.
1: Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Ed.